Welcome this afternoon to um, this month's Practice as Research Network. Um, it's the last one um, for this academic year, which um, has been a really, really great experience. Um, we've had some, some fast, fantastic talks and presentations, and today is going to be no different. So what we've got today is um, Matthew Butcher with us. Thank you, Matthew, for being here. Um, and Matthew is going to be talking about the architecture of slowness, reflecting on the actions of historical repetitions and loops. And I have asked Matthew to come along and present because as part of the Practice as Research seminar series, we're trying to highlight the different forms that Practice as Research may, may take. Um, and in this particular case, um, obviously this is outside of my area of expertise altogether, but I'm still hoping to be able to learn of what it actually means to do practice as research. So with no further ado, I'd like to hand over to Matthew. Um, and yes, please, you know, um, just just present your, your talk and then we'll have a conversation around um, the different kinds of things that come up. Uh, thank you very much, Nicola, for um, inviting me to speak. Um, it's uh, it's very interesting what you're trying to do and, and hopefully my talk will tap into some of the themes or relate to some of the themes that you're trying to set up with this network. Um, so I'm going to try and share my screen. Yep, there we go. Um, can you see that okay? Yes, thank you. Okay, so uh, actually I've got to change this. Oh no, that's not right. Sorry. Okay. So um, uh, today I'm just going to present uh, a series of my design projects and, and start to try to link them into certain kind of theoretical ideas I've been um, kind of working with alongside the, the design of the, of the architectural projects um, and specifically two areas of, my, of interest in my work um, and to explore the kind of origins of, of where and why that has been the focus of, of what I've been trying to do um, over the last 10 years. Um, so I'm just going to start with a, a, a reading out a brief uh, description of, of a kind of overview of, of what, the, what the work's been doing. So the ambition for my work over the last 10 years has been driven by a deep concern that we are becoming increasingly disembodied from and disenchanted by our experience and understanding of the material and physical world. This is being driven by ongoing philosophical legacies of modernity that we are still forced to operate within, politically, socially, and culturally. These legacies have proliferated a desire for dominance over nature, a celebration of technological progress, a technocratic means of operation, a desire to deny history, and to a certain extent, context. They are positions that have led directly to the damage that has been currently done to our environment, with the fifth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, stating that with high confidence, this damage will have irreversible and dramatic consequences on our ways of life. These effects of climate identified by the IPCC include worldwide disruption of existing ecosystems, an increase in dramatic weather conditions such as coastal flooding, threat of drought, extreme participation, rising sea levels and extensive coastal erosion. For geographer Lee Glover in his book, Postmodern Climate Change, the link between modernity and climate change is undeniable. He states that to identify climate change as an outcome of modernity is at the one level, a statement of the obvious. It is a contemporary issue born of an industrial society. Going further in his analysis, his argument focuses on the idea that it is not just about industrialization, but also about the process of governance emphasis on scientific solutions and technology that are fundamentally contributing to the problem and not allowing for a solution. For Glover, one of the problems of this emphasis on technology that is being driven not by any specific cause, social, political, or cultural necessity, but rather as part of modernity's fixation on a narrative of progress. Outlining this issue, he states, central to modernity is the doctrine of progress. Modernization is premiered on the belief that through modernity, society improves upon its predecessors, going on to present the idea that 
Western society has taken the doctrine of program, progress as a social norm and form of meta-narrative. The concept of progress is embedded in the cultural rubric of modern society. As a means of opposing and finding an alternative to these conditions of modernity, and specifically the rubric of progress associated with it, my work has focused on two key explorations. Firstly, it is focused on the making of an architecture that can reframe our understanding of and our relationship to the environments we inhabit and the effects of climate change. Um, one of the, the key ambitions then of, of my work is to question um, propositions such as, as what's being presented here, which is um, a new, more advanced flood barrier that would sit in Tilbury in the Thames estuary and uh, would uh, essentially stop um, and prevent um, flooding of London and of the Thames Gateway, so valuable um, land uh, for development um, in the um, Situ you know, in the case of rising sea levels, which we know will happen. My issue with, with um, these kind of technological solutions, if you like, to the effects of climate change is that they firstly require vast amounts of resources to design and build, but also then they require vast amounts of energy to run. And secondly, they also give us the impression that we are somehow uh, immune to the effects of nature and that we can technologically design ourselves out of the, the, the crisis through our progress and innovation. So this kind of hubris, if you like, can also be witnessed in um, what is a very, you know, could be seen as a very positive thing and is a positive thing, which is the ongoing desire for um, regulatory bodies and governments involved in, in the planning of, and design of the built environment to regulate for the control of, of buildings and, and, and uh, cities and the internal environments around our cities. This obviously has positive health potentials, but it tends to reduce everything to a kind of statistical norm um, where humans become uh, no longer active in the choice of whether they are hot or cold. Uh, the buildings in a way um, dictate the, the nature of how they sense and feel within the environments that they are inhabiting. Um, also, you have a, a, a big move within particularly European bodies to move to automated control systems and, and controlled by computers, often by computers that are in different cities to the buildings themselves, which make humans, um, you know, just inactive entities within these environments. Also, a lot of the, the building materials and products that are being used to help seal these environments or, or create um, you know, more efficient environmental control systems are, are manufactured out of petrochemical uh, materials, which, you know, is also perpetuating an existing problem through extract, you know, notions of extraction and the use of, of oil as a kind of integral component of our um, uh, economy and, and, and social life, our social being. So as an alternative to these uh, uh, conditions, I uh, started a series of projects that looked at the idea of habiting a, um, a proposed floodplain that would exist in the um, mouth of the River Thames in the estuary, um, both on the north side and the south side of the river. On the south side of the river, uh, these projects exist in, in a, a proposal where I would suggest the removal of the current sea wall on the south bank and allow the river to splay into the um, historic salt marshes at Cliff, creating an intertidal zone. So within this zone, uh, well, um, you would essentially have uh, a situation that would uh, exist like this. This is um, Abbott Hall Farm in Essex, where they've, um, they've tested a situation um, of breaching the seawall and allowing the land to flood. Um, and uh, what this has allowed is essentially a runoff, an area of runoff water uh, that the sea can travel into, which actually protects areas of land uh, further upstream. So it has a kind of positive um, facet to its infrastructure. So within my own design, uh, looking at, at the positioning of the river within this context, and then the design of both large and small scale architectures that would inhabit this environment, such as um, buildings or shelters made of reeds um, and also sediment 
um, that can be inhabited. Also the construction of um, sediment-based infrastructures that uh, would be formed through the um, installation of sediment nets that would slow the, the, the river's water and allow beaches to form, that would allow you to travel across this landscape. Um, and then kind of more absurdist or speculative ideas, such as houses that might be blown across the water when uh, it freezes on the ice, um, particularly an idea that would be possible if temperatures become more extreme and also if the, um, the, the shallow nature of a lot of the, the marshland uh, that would occur in that region. Um, so again, all of these uh, designs uh, would be possible and would also become habitable or, in, uh, or, or would become activated through shifts in the climate, making you more aware of these processes. Um, I actually in 2006 got to construct um, one of these ideas, which was the uh, Flood House, which was a project I developed with um, curator Jess Fernie and Focal Point Gallery in Southend for a floating house, it was a speculative idea for a house, but also a weather station. Um, this structure was moved around the coast of Essex uh, during the summer of 2016, um, highlighting the very particular nature of the landscape around the estuary and the Essex coast. And, and in particular, it followed the path of the sea walls that exist there, showing how they essentially divided up the land. So that's a photo of it. Um, at South End Pier. So this, the second critical uh, facet to my work alongside this desire to kind of highlight um, the effects of, of climate change or, or change to the environment is to also challenge the existing rubric, if you like, of, of the notion, philosophical notion of progress that, that's inherent within modernity and the modernity that, that exists in our current society. And specifically rather than than or this this is part of it design architectures that exist in in landscapes that are are a threat of climate change it's also to look at the the way that the um architectures are designed and to challenge the, the notion of of um of progress within the, these methodologies and and specifically within this i'm i'm trying to critique a, a an increased body of, of practitioners and theoreticians within the discipline that are trying to emphasize the use of technology in the design and construction of buildings. Um, this exists within uh, theories around parametricism, which was um, championed a lot by Zahadid um, architects um, and uh, utilizes the idea that you can program in the parameters of any building um, that include cost, materials, climate, inhabitation function, and essentially the computer will give you the most optimized form for that particular use. Um, and, and part of the narrative of this is increasingly that, that this is the mo more efficient way of, of, of designing architecture and that without this efficiency that architecture will remain archaic and outside of, of the kind of neoliberal market economics that, that we exist within. So this is very much about trying to valorize architecture within, to, within this, the, the market. Um, the other, uh, I suppose, um, type of, of discourse around computation and computers that I'm trying to critique is the, the increased relationship or, or uh, relationship to, uh, to digital manufacturing, the desire to, uh, to create a a more direct relationship between um, the design of buildings and their construction and the idea that you would use robots or drones to um, construct uh, buildings. Again, buildings that tend to be based upon algorithmic or um, artificial intelligence or parametric design methods. So against these architectures, um, I'm trying to propose a uh, an architecture of slowness. Um, and the origin of this idea of slowness uh, has in part emerged from the reading of philosopher Bruno Latour's essay, uh, which is titled Attempt at a Compositionist Manifesto. And in the essay, Latour seeks to criticize the actions of the moderns and their fixi fixation on the pursuit of the new. 
He points at how the climate crisis we are now experiencing was driven by a desperate desire for individuals to progress and specifically for Latour to escape history. For Latour, it was modernity's intrinsic emphasis on progress and with it the need to move quickly away from current and past conditions, whether social, political or cultural, that increased industrialization and the desire for technological advancement. As a way of providing an alternative to this condition, Latour calls to us to acknowledge that the time of time has passed and instead he asks us to look around, feel and see the world in order to be more aware as we move forward. As part of this inquiry within this presentation, I would like to present how my architectures exist as slowness and act as forms of critique against society's ongoing reliance on fossil fuels and our increased levels of consumption on them. So just to uh, paraphrase that, uh, in the next body of work, I am seeking to present the way that the design methodologies that I used within certain of my design projects could be seen um, within themselves as a critique of modern society on uh, modern society's reliance on notions of progress. So um, the next project I'd like to present is uh, uh, the Silt House. The Silt House belongs to the same family, if you like, as the other ones I presented in the sense that it was a, an architecture that was designed for a um, landscape that would be affected by uh, seasonal flooding or prone to seasonal flooding. Um, uh, like the other projects, it's, it's situated on the mud flats, um, but it's, it's concrete and it's, it's a sealed structure that would be a house for one or two families principally. Um, as part of its operation um, in its location, the structure is also designed to enable the collection and disposition of sediment onto its structure that increases the um, thermal mass of the building and increases the uh, insulation properties of the structure during the winter months. So the sediment forms like a second skin when it is deposited onto the structure. Just some drawings of a model showing what this would what this would look like. So um, one of my key influences for this particular piece of work was um, the work of uh, avant-garde architect and poet Raymond Abraham, uh, and particularly his 10 houses projects, which were, which were designed and drawn, they exist primarily as drawings, models, and bits of buildings, but apparently drawn, and, and they were they were designed and 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 created between 1970 and 1973. And what was kind of really important for me within this work, or has been very important for me in this work over the last um, ten years or so, is the way that um, Abraham has tried to find an architecture which. Uh, allows the natural environment to change its form or or is the natural environment becomes kind of synthesized within it, within the framework or the form of the architecture. What's also really critical for the for his work, and actually, as you'll see later on in the presentation, others of this period, was their critique within the design of this architecture of what they saw as the manipulation and control of um, architecture at that time um, with practices that were focused also on an emphasis on technology and technology technocracy and particularly ideas of form follows function where um, the function took precedent over any aesthetic or philosophical debate and in many instances the function was was a calculable uh, square footage or a kind of um, uh, engineered socially engineered idea of how we should live so um, in the image is, is one of Abraham's uh, 10 houses project, which was the house with curtains, which is uh, you know, this kind of gridded form and the, where the facades of the building are made of these blown curtains that would be shifted and moved as the, as the wind passed. Um, you have the earth cloud house where the roof and main structure of the building is a mirrored surface that reflects const constantly reflects the the sky and the moving clouds but then also its basement is it, it takes the form of um a uh, cloud in itself 
and uh, then House of Two Halves, which um, is essentially a kind of buried structure in a in a burial mound, uh, which is kind of referenced back to a kind of primeval or prime prime or prehistorical pre uh, type architecture. So parallel to my interest in, in Abraham and also asking questions of how it might influence my own work, I was also drawn to the work of uh, Peter Eisenman, uh, who was situated in New York at the same time as um, Raymond Abraham, and was also a colleague of his teaching at the Cooper Union. And um, both of them were, were drawn to this idea of, of a critique against um, this ongoing emphasis on uh, technology and technocracy dominating architectural discourse at the expense of a philosophical exploration. Um, unlike Abraham, uh, Eisenman's uh, particular uh, resistance, if you like, to the, to the dominant forms of architecture as he saw was not necessarily to, to look at the relationship between architecture and nature, but to explore a historical um, historical precedents, uh, particularly architecture from the 1930s, that he believed were driven ultimately by an aesthetic and philosophical ambition. So one of the people that he was most uh, influenced by was uh, Giuseppe Taranghi, who, who this is a, a building of his in Lake Como, who uh, Eisenman argues was fundamentally driven by um, decisions around composition, around experience, um, around the play of light and form um, and uh, driven by a kind of uh, philosophical discourses in the, that, that were happening in the early part of the 20th century that Eisman felt had been lost. So um, as part of his uh, uh, desire to adopt these um, these, these architectures and bring them into a contemporary context. He, Eisman conducted a PhD in, in at Cambridge University in 1963, uh, where he moved to England. He, he, he then traveled back um, from England to uh, uh, the US after completing the PhD. But, uh, but during this time, he conducted these um, kind of forensic analysis of the buildings that he thought were um, you know, manifested his 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 desire for what architecture should be. So within these drawings, that their, their analysis is, is of composition, of the facades, of the different geometries, highlighting the different geometries in different ways, and and basically removing the physicality of the building into a set of codes or grammar, if you like, um, that then would he would then use to develop his buildings over the next ten to twenty years. So these are the drawings of, of Tarangi's building in Como. So kind of influenced by this notion, I was fascinated by the idea of what, what, in what way could I, in the development of the Silt House and my relationship with Abraham, in what way could I start to develop my own grammar from Abraham that then would apply uh, to the design of the Silt House. And the way that I did this is, is quite simply follow a similar methodology to um, Eisenman, which is kind of construct quite a forensic analysis of his drawings, kind of dissecting them into um, specific formal tropes that in a way were abstracting the original architecture, but actually were a process for me to try to understand the components. And through the act of drawing and the, the, the analysis that I was conducting in terms of what to draw, why to draw, how to separate it from the drawing, I was in a way forming a a mental understanding of what these components are and how in that process of thinking about the silt house, uh, just to say these were done, you know, during the actions of the draw of the first set of drawings for the, for the silt house project, they were allowing me to think about what I was drawing and why I was drawing it um, and how it might relate to Abraham. So in this, these, just these four drawings here, we see analysis of, of the cloud, uh, earth cloud house and uh, the house of curtains, uh, specifically the formal nature of the, um, the, the cloud house, uh, the, the nature of captivating wind in the curtains and the idea of a kind of burial or structure that's semi-buried buried, um, in that process. So kind of looking at how these then manifest themselves in, in my own design work or how this process then took ideas from Abraham into my own project. 
So you can see the reference to the kind of formal relationship with the cloud in the Earth Cloud House kind of manifests itself into the kind of floor plates of the silt house, which were reminiscent of the mud flats um, of which the building sat on. Um, also, the idea of transversing these undulating floor plates would be the idea is it would be akin to kind of walking on the, the resistance that you would face when walking on the mudflat um, uh, of the estuary. The kind of burial, the notion of the burial mound was was manifest in the idea of the building being um, covered in sediment. Um, and then the the, the, the moving curtains of the um, house with curtains became the way that the structure's position in the estuary and the way it would control sediment. Just to say the, the plan on the right is a simulation I did um, where I put a model of the building into a simulated uh, kind of estuarial environments with, with particulates and, and seeing what would happen to those particulates disturbed by the um, by the structure of the uh, of the house and how this could be a kind of a barometer, if you like, of flooding. Um, the increased amount of sediment, the increased amount of movement would would potentially be ind indicative of a flood. Uh, in the case that the waters are moving faster and there is more sediment in the water. In the same way, the curtains capture wind. Um, the, the the harder they billow, the more they billow, the more that is an indication of the of the the movements of the wind. Um, so in slight opposition to the kind of quite forensic analysis that I made in the silt house in terms of reciprocity between a, a past and a present and a kind of slowness that exists in this within this reciprocity, my work has always take my work has also taken on board um, certain practices um, associated with performance art and particularly notions of reenactment. Um, just to read uh, a couple of um, uh, notions of what reenactment means. Um, one of the, the, the key theorists on this practice is called Rebecca Schneider. And in her book, Performance Remains, she states that, that the practice of replaying or redoing a present event, artwork or an act, as well as being a mechanism that troubles linear temporality by offering at least the suggestion of reoccurrence or return, even this practice is peppered with an ongoing incompletion. And for performance theorist Andre Lebecki, as set out in his article, The Body as Archive, Will to Reenact and the Afterlives of Dances, the process of reenactment stimulates a capacity to identify in a past work non-exhaustive creative fields of impossible possibilities. And then probably really uh, most critical uh, uh, to the presentation of my work in this uh, uh, talk is the idea, again by Schneider, that the process of a temporal return manifest as reenactment should manifest a political purpose for a critical approach to futurity, unhinged from capitalist development narratives of time and secular investments in progress as strictly linear. So um, one of the key artists uh, for me um, alongside Abraham and Eisenman and uh, actually working in a contemporary context rather back in the 1960s is, is the artist Pablo Bronstein. And um, what interests me the, in, in Pablo uh, or Bronstein's work for um, particular is this idea that um, reenactment can exist in a drawing or through a process of drawing. It's not only a kind of performance, if you like, or a, 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 of a body moving through space. Um, and uh, uh, what's critical with um, within this work is is the notion is Pablo's notion that uh, through the process of drawing you can role play uh, or reenact historical styles or styles of architects or even uh, people in power that then allow him to create kind of fantastical visions that that are juxt weird juxtapositions when you look at them within the contemporary context because they're of historic what's seemingly historical. Uh, uh, structures or styles, but they are there to kind of, I suppose, question our relationship to the places that we all inhabit all of the time, which are, in a way, our cities are all constructed, or a lot of them are constructed out of out of the times that we we are living in at the moment. So this is a, a drawing of Pablo's for an 18th century um, palace, I think, um, based on the mall. Uh, he did this drawing is um, where he was role-playing the 1980s architect, uh, 
Michael Graves and then placing it into a 18th century context. And here the designs for um, a uh, lighthouse in the style of, um, but I've forgotten. Well, 18th century style. Um, so the way that I've taken forward uh, uh, Pablo's ideas, it's not strictly to look at uh, 18th century or postmodern architecture recontextualized, but to, to think of that process as a way for me to draw out um, a particular idea that was intrinsic in, in projects like the Silt House that may not necessarily be seen as explicit or be able to be read as explicit without me writing about it. So the process of reenactment becomes a kind of parallel discourse on the work and a reevaluation of the work that has happened after the main design that allows me to draw out ideas that were, were part of that process, but not necessarily easily read um, uh, in the uh, final drawings and models of the project. So um, within Silt House, this existed uh, as redrawing the project as though it were part of his, an historical work by the architect Bernard Schumi called the Manhattan Transcripts, which was um, conducted during the, the early 70s and, and um, was uh, primarily uh, exhibited and then produced a book uh, at the architect uh, for the Architectural Association at the time. And one of the core ideas of the Manhattan Transcripts is the idea that um, through event and uh, Schumi, um, allows us to engage with this through the construction of fictional events that he uh, he foresaw or see uh, um, imagined for New York um, and then he drew these events as kind of choreographed uh, incidences with with bodies moving through space he then also drew these choreographed instances and these bodies moving through space as kind of architectural elements such as walls and um, he quotes uh, a, a performance by Lucinda Charles, who was a, a key choreographer and dancer in the 1960s and 70s in New York, and her performance in a production of Einstein on the Beach by Philip Glass and um, uh, Robert Wilson, um, where she runs backwards and forwards for 10 minutes. And in running backwards and forwards for 10 minutes, he saw in this uh, performance that she was not only a body moving through space, which is also a piece of architecture. And that this has led him to the um, Manhattan transcripts. So in um, my, sorry, something's happened. Oh, there we go. Um, so in my uh, drawings of Silt House, I, one of the, 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 the key ideas I wanted to draw out was this idea that actually the body's moving through the building and the movement of sediment in the landscape were a kind of choreographed performance that the building was, was forcing both particulates and people to um, engage with. So by drawing it as part of the Manhattan transcripts, you start to see people moving across these undulated surfaces of the building. And then also in these, these segments, the idea of the sediment slowly building up as a kind of solid entity or an architectural entity in and of themselves. Okay, just to finish off, I'm going to talk about um, another project um, of mine, which is um, looking at um, a, uh, uh, the architectural practice, the radical architectural practice super studio, um, who were working in Florence in the uh, 1960s and 1970s. Um, and they were a speculative um, architectural practice, very similar to Abraham, if you like, but their ambitions were much uh, wider, if you like, in the sense that they were, were um, proposing a massive, one of the, the famous projects they were doing, which is the continuous monument, they were proposing an enormous infrastructure that would encircle the globe. Um, and that they were that everything was emerged from this kind of gridded structure, um, whether it's furniture or, or other forms um, of, of structures. And they were they were really like, I mean, similar to Abraham and Eisenman, they were seeking to critique or satorialize the ongoing obsession within modernity of technology and technocracy um, by taking it to the furthest extreme possible. So there's obviously a kind of um, resonance within what they were doing in, in their work and what I'm 
the interest that I have in, in a contemporary context. So I'm interested in, in referring back to this period to, to try to draw something from that into this contemporary context. So the way that I did this in, in slight opposition to the two the other forms of, of um, synthesis with history that, that I presented was to actually start to adapt or, or inhabit and use um, uh, one of their drawings, um, which is a drawing of uh, the Missouri uh, furniture series that they conducted in the late 60s, which is a proposal for um, a body of work uh, body of furniture really that would that was representative of their larger ambitions within the continuous monument so the action i did is i took the drawing and i dragged it across the surface of a photocopier and distorted it um uh, so it became kind of you know undulated forms and the grid gets completely distorted um so these are two uh versions of this uh, drawing and then this is probably the one that was the most successful where I, I slid the drawing back in a kind of wave motion across the surface of the scanner. Um, from this I then started to cut out um, or isolate certain elements that I could potentially see functioning as architectural components and um, the other thing that this process enabled is me to think about the action as a kind of sampling, you know, that you might get within music where you, you, you take a moment in a song or a moment in a beat, which retains the essence of the original. And, and in many ways, the kind of um, intent or interest or aesthetic importance, but it becomes reconfigured into a different context, but retaining the, the initial, um, uh, the initial uh, uh, beauty, if you like, within that that moment of music, and, and the same was the same feeling uh, for me was in this process of of, of taking out these um, stretching or changing the original drawing and then taking moments out. Um, so from that process, I started to put it into certain architectural viewpoints in terms of a, an axonometric or isometric to start to see it potentially as an architectural surface. And then from there, I was interested in that becoming almost directly or literally a structure. And um, the architecture I proposed was for this platform to exist as a monument to Superstudio that would exist beneath the um, city of Florence. Um, another process I, underto I undertook with this drawing and its distortion was to, to photocopy it 56 times and to in in the process of photocopying to slowly erase the drawing or or to remove its complexity to re, you know take it back to an essence there is a resonance i think also within eisenman's um ambitions to 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 pull tarangi back to a kind of essence um you know uh that he was doing within his drawn plans but i was doing it in kind of mechanical way if you like um, or a photographic way so um, particularly with the, the later ones, I think that the, the drawing on, the, on, on my right, I don't know if that's on your left, the most faded one, um, I then took a portion of that and started to project up lines um, or points uh, to kind of um, start to inform some sort of architectural intervention. And what that did, those points, was actually inform the roof structure of the monument to Super Studio, a slightly different design, a later design that I've shown earlier with a, this as a round uh, vessel that it contains in. Um, anyway, these points uh, became these dots that you can see, which were um, proposed as holes in the uh, flagstones and concrete of the uh, of Florence above, the city above, that allow water to collect and drip through. And as it dripped through, it would draw the salts and the um, different um, calciums within the concrete and the stone to form uh, what's called uh, calthamites, which are kind of essentially uh, fast growing concrete based stalactites. Um, and, and when you're in the, the monument studio, you would look up and see in this weird dotted grid or not grid, the, the remnants of the distorted drawing, you see these points um, uh, uh, referencing that and then also uh, you would have a series of uh, drawn on the bottom part of this drawing you would have a series of air vents that would poke through the bottom of the structure of the surface that would blow a uh, kind of gentle air so as you walked over the surface of the monument to super studio you would get these this sense uh, landscape where you would inhabit these points that were then taken from the distorted drawing and that's probably clearer in there 
So these are the air vents and those are the, um, the, the points to collect the calamites. So um, just in conclusion, um, building on Bruno Latour's call for us to stop fixating on notions of progress and to end the time of time, I suggest that Silt House and Monument to Superstudio super present us with models of architectures of slowness. Within this presentation, I have shown this with reference to the methodologies of design I employed in these projects that have sought to mime and reenact historic architectural works into the later works. Within this specific slowness and the use of history, both Silt House and Monument to Superstudio act as a provocation and resistance to certain architectural practices and discourses that seek to promote a continuing emphasis on the use of computation and then the utilization of forms of digital manufacture in the design and construction of architecture. These processes seek to continually enhance efficiency in the service of capital and the expense of our natural environment. Instead, Silt House and Monument to Superstudio ask us to reflect and to move slowly, questioning the didactic separation between what is considered past and present and the idea that time must always follow a linear path forward. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matthew. This was great. This is really, you know, the thing is, it's really, really exciting to hear somebody talk um, about, you know, things that we've obviously not been part of um, because it's not our discipline. But actually, there are so many connecting points um, with, you know, philosophically and methodologically and, and theoretically that it kind of is weird to think that, you know, we are coming from different disciplines because actually there's a lot that we do that you've described um, there is a comment in the chat box where, um, which I'm reading out. It says um, that is fascinating and the philosophy is very, very, very relevant to me. Thanks so much. So it's exactly that kind of thing that, that the connecting points. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Of course, um, so when we when you're talking about the Sealed House project and the Super Studio project, um, they are obviously methodologically you're approaching them slightly differently in this reenactment process of, of redrawing and, and using the photocopier to redraw and reenact in that way. What what how do you account for what do you bring to it? I mean, this is so for this academic year, um, when we were talking about practice as research within our network, we were like kind of trying to find out how we do reflexivity and what kind of positionality we are taking. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in how do you account for um, the different approaches um, in, in, in these two contexts? You know, wh why is it that one, you, you, you're very closely remaining really close to, to, to the original by redrawing it, whereas the second one is almost creating your own piece of art. Um, so, so how do you account for that difference? And uh, I know I that, that the answer is not going to be easy, but it's, it's that kind of thing that we're trying to sort of pull out, extrapolate this academic year. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a very interesting question. It's probably, I wasn't able, I, when I started to write this presentation a couple of days ago, I was, I was do I do I bring that shift, the reason for that shifting to the fore? And there wasn't really the time and I felt that it was slightly distracting to the argument. But I mean, it, it's a very important question. I think the Silt House was created, um, I mean, it was you know nearly six years ago and a Monument to Studio was two years ago, three years ago. So there's quite a big time difference between the two. And within that time frame, I actually um, edited an issue of architectural design um, called Reimagining the Avant-Garde, which was looking at the process of, um, of, of, less, of how you adapt historical precedents into a contemporary context and actually trying to get to understand a trend that I was seeing, you know, in, in 2016, 2017. And certainly when I, you know, after I'd, I'd worked on the Silt House. And actually what was quite interesting is I was in, engaging in quite a lot of conversations of, about the idea of how do you repeat without repeating, yes. you know, and, 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 <laughs> and, and particularly concerns from a, a, a theorist and journalist called Mimi Zeiger, a writer, who, who was just very genuinely concerned that if we continually repeat forms or, or shapes or ideas, without intervening in a more direct way that they become, you know, they become meaningless in a way, how much we protest in that. And uh, I mean, she's very kind about my own work in the sense that she doesn't, 
she you know she has uh, talked about it and 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 she feels that it's it, there is a criticality in my process but I still wanted to do a piece that was responding to that in a way and and Monument to Studio was a kind of um was an attempt to do that the idea of how you intervene into a history how you still create a reflective process on history um without necessarily having to repeat tropes if you know what I mean and and I and and, and that was really where that kind of work emerged from um, and I have written a bit about that um direct uh, uh relationship um and also I was quite interested in I mean, again, I didn't talk about this, but I was quite interested in the kind of iconoclasm of mm. Monument to Stoop Studio, that, that in the same way that you are engaging with that work, you're also destroying it. And um, what that means to destroy something you love. And, you know, there's something quite personal about that, but see that also as a creative process, you know, and actually seeing the positivity of trying, you know, the, the didactic nature of, 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 redoing something but also destroying it at the same time and and uh, that was quite important i think it's quite interesting really that in, if you if you listen very carefully to what you're saying there are you know a number of tensions um here like you say you know in the creation you're destroying but actually the destruction is not something negative but at the same time um you're saying that on the one hand you know um we're looking at well there is this critique here about progress um and and yet on the other hand we're saying we can't keep repeating the same thing so there is this again this tension between well progress is problematic but we do need it to some extent so it's it's that kind of element there that that's really interesting in your work yeah i mean it was it, that was um so there's a helicopter in there when you hear it or plane. Um, yeah, it, I mean, I am interested in contradictions in, in work. It's, yeah. You know, in a way, it's that they're about asking questions as much as providing solutions. Um, so I wasn't... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, also, you, you, you have time to reflect when you're doing something. Sometimes yeah. things are... You act on something... Um, you know, initially or respond to a particular comment or a particular concern. And then the word, the meaning of the word changes as you think about it more or, it's, or you talk about it more. And, and certainly with Monument Studio, I think my thoughts about it have changed um, uh, its meaning. Um, it's interesting progress with that work. First of all, it's a monument to something. So it's, it's, it's it, ultimately it's, it's resisting, it's trying to, you know, state that we have to yes. memorialize the past while also destroying it at the same time. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a weird one, that one. I, I quite like it, it's kind of stuck in itself. Which, when is, you say which that, is the problem of, of returning to creating you know, yes. <laughs> historical loops, I suppose. When you're saying that um, you quite like contradictions, is that, um, you know, that practice as research, is that a contradiction to you as well? That, you know, the, the, in terms of like the doing and the drawing, for example, to, to actually be a, a, a research process and a reflective process, um, or is that, is that something that, that's natural for you? Um, I've always, sought historic a, a, a relationship with history whenever I've been designing so before I was an academic before I was involved in teaching um, I was always trying to evaluate my work uh, even as a student within certain precedents as a way of validation and criticality and that's what I what that's what I see at the essence of a kind of design research process um, that that it's a that, that it's a it provides a space to to evaluate and to question what you're doing within relationship to existing context, context and through that process to, to, to allow the work to gather more meaning. The, the kind of concretization of that is harder because um, written language, I would argue is it's harder to allow there to be ambiguity and contradiction in the same way that, that you can in a visual medium. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm not as, as skilled writer as some, but I find it very difficult for there not to be the construction of an argument and a, and a logical argument in a way gives less 
room, although it is a very important part of a process, it gets less room than something like a drawing, which which can provoke feelings or anxieties or intrigue, things that are less tangible um, and and don't require necessarily the, the, the logics of language. I mean, they, they have their own logics that they need to respond to. They, they, they need to work in a way that's very difficult to quantify um, what that means. And it, it tends to be, you know, around a, a drawing needs to respond to certain criteria or an architectural drawing. You know that, that that allows it to be legitimized um i mean maybe that's the next thing to write about thank you i mean to be honest in in many ways what you're saying just now is is actually aligning with what um monica Zazatelli said in in her talk in in the seminar from um two months ago from may um, um she is using drawing um as part of her sociological um research um, so she uses drawing to understand how it's drawing off fashion pieces and clothes in order to understand people's identity work um, and, and she's saying exactly the same thing that actually yeah the engagement with with those processes through the the collage making and the drawing um, it allows for several layers to happen whereas if you're writing about it there's only one layer and and that's that's that layering that's then missing is the part that makes it so difficult to to express what we are actually doing when when we're doing practice as research. Well, thank you very much, Matthew. I thank really, you. really appreciate you having been here. It's It's been great to have you. Um, thank you very much. It's 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 really exciting to to yeah to hear your work. Um, I'm going to share my screen very, very quickly just to highlight um, the Practice as Research Network um, YouTube channel and the Buzzsprout channel and the podcast um, and the website. Um, and also, um, obviously, there is an opportunity to sign up to the um, newsletters and to contact me via my um, work email there um, on, on, the, on the slide as well. Um, we are taking a break um, for the summer holidays, but we'll be back in the autumn with um, a new academic year and um, on in that new academic year we're going to be focusing on practice as research um, and anything that has to do with ethical considerations in all of the disciplinary contexts of practice as research. So again Matthew thank you very very much for, for, for having been thank here um, and uh, we, we hope to, to see you and everyone again um, when, it, when it comes to the autumn term. Thank you very much, thank you Nicole.